Hey everyone, Taylor here. Before we jump into this episode, we just wanted to put in a quick disclaimer that we will be talking about murder and true crime, and there will be mention of assault and animal violence. So if you would rather not listen to that, or if it's triggering for you in any way, we totally understand if you want to skip this episode and just join us again in two weeks. But otherwise, let's go ahead and dive on in. I'm Taylor. And And we we are are not not amused. Today we will be talking about more murder. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) I just assumed I have a murderer and Taylor does too. Yep. Okay. (laughs) We're talking about true crime today. Wow, it's like we planned it. We we try. We do our best. Uh, We're busy people. This is not our full-time job. Nope. Okay, so first, tea. We need to talk about what tea we're drinking. Mm-hmm. What you got, Taylor? I have a peach ruibos from Brits, which I think you've had on here before. Yum. Maybe because I know I've tried it. I don't remember what I thought of it. I feel like you have, but I don't remember <laughs> when it was. <laughs> nope. Okay. Well, I am having a tea I have probably also already had on this podcast, but it just sounded really good and comforting today, and I needed that. I'm having the Bigelow's French Vanilla Tea, but I'm doing the decaf version. So we'll see if that's any different. There you go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, okay. Quickest intro ever. We're so good at this. Mm-hmm. Old hat now. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going first today, um, and I am covering the serial killer Joseph Kappen. All righty. So he is known also as the Saturday Night Strangler. Oh. He, <laughs> right. Uh, he raped and murdered three teenage girls in 1973. And he was never arrested for his crimes. Ever? We'll, ever. We'll get to that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some background on this douchebag. He was born <laughs> in October 1941. He was first arrested at age 12. Um, he was com- like he went on to commit a ton of different crimes, like car theft, burglary, assault. He was in and out of prison since he was 12, basically. Hmm. He married, um, uh, well, he met Christine Powell, who later became his wife. They met in 1962 when she was 17 and he was 21. Mm. So, it begins. <laughs> uh, and they got married in 1964, so she was 19, technically legal at that point, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and he was 23. Um, I, I should mention this, they're Welsh, so, like, I don't know if their laws are different. Oh, I was about to ask up. if you'd said where yeah. he was from, and I just missed it. Yeah. Uh, they're Welsh. Okay. This happened in that area. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um. So, yeah, I don't know what their, like, age of consent was at the time over there, but, mm-hmm. of course, where I'm used to it being, like, around 18. So, um, anyway, she was definitely a teenager when all this was going down. Um, she later testified in court that 
this is really unpleasant that he like raped her repeatedly while they were married like every couple weeks oh god Uh uh-huh um and they had a child named paul in the marriage that was a result of the one of the rapes and um joseph also strangled the family dog to death in front of his child paul um so he was like just a fucked up man yeah Uh, yeah not not fun um he worked as a bouncer um so that gave him like in a nightclub which gave him access to a lot of young girls back then mm-hmm. which is super icky and this is like back when like teenagers went to nightclubs you know 60s right. and 70s yeah. especially um i guess uh in 1964 which um is the year he got married to christine he f- was caught forcing himself on a 15 year old who luckily escaped him mm-hmm. but yeah so he married someone and within the same year was also trying to assault other women so he was already married yeah when he did that okay yeah Yeah, he just nasty (sighs) so his main crime that he is known for is um the murder of the three teenage girls in 1973 Mm -hmm. here's how it all went down all three of them were only 16 years old at the time that they died Uh, The first victim was Sandra Newton. Uh, This was July of 1973. She went missing after a night out in Britain Ferry, wherever that is, somewhere in Wales. Um, She was found three days later, just a few miles away from where she was out clubbing. Um, There was almost no attempt to hide the body. It was literally just, like, dumped there. Oh. Um, She had been very clearly raped and murdered. Mm -hmm. based on what they found Mm -hmm. um so that was the first victim that was found and then in september of 1973 geraldine hughes and pauline floyd went missing after a night out in swansea which is close by Mm -hmm. um they were seen hitchhiking by some friends um getting a ride in an austin 1100 which is a type of car i guess okay um that obviously comes into play later. <laughs> right. Uh, they were both found the next day about five miles away. Again, same thing. Bodies were dumped in a forested area. They were very obviously raped and murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, it also appeared that one girl attempted to escape. And, like, she ran towards the road. Apparently, like, her dad was a steel worker in the town. And so she, like, ran towards her dad's work. Oh, and then they, they found her. Like, he, he, he caught up with her. So Ugh. that's, like, extra, extra heartbreaking in yeah. this situation. Yeah. Um, at the time, though, so the so Sandra was the first murder that happened in July of 1973. And then we had Geraldine and Pauline found together in September of 1973. Same, really similar MOs, right, mm-hmm. in situations. But at the time, police did not consider the two incidents linked at all. Which is kind of mind-blowing, but I'm sure with all the other cases they deal with, they just were like, ay, another murder, you know, I don't know. Right. Unfortunately. Um, they did not consider those things related. So, um, the police interviewed uh, almost all the steel workers that worked in the nearby factory, but they came up with nothing. That was over 13,000 men. 
So that was a, oh my God. Hell of a lot of people to yeah. go through. But the, the factory being so nearby and being, you know, literally all men that worked there, it mm-hmm. was kind of one of the, there was a logical place to start. Right. Um, they also interviewed almost all the nearby owners of an Austin 1100 car, which was about 10,000 people. Oh, okay. Uh, Joseph Kappen was one of them. He, mm-hmm. They had him on record owning that car. What happened when they arrived at his house was the car was sitting on blocks, no tires, on the car. And he told them it didn't drive. So he was immediately like, they were like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> have a nice day, Mr. Kappen. Right? Hmm. Um, the other thing to note is the wife also gave a false alibi, um, which took all the police attention off of him at that point. Right. And I'm not surprised. I mean, if you think about what we know, what we found out later about how their marriage was. Yeah. I'm sure she was coerced into oh, yeah. a lot and abused and it was awful. Exactly. So I, I feel for her in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so get this though, with the car situation, um, after the killings, specifically with the two girls that were found, um, the police surveyed the scene nearby um, Cappen's car, like specifically his tagged car, was logged as being on the side of the road nearby when police like surveyed and mm-hmm. took note of the scene. But then they interviewed him and the interviewers found his car to not be working, quote unquote. Everything was on paper back then mm-hmm. and they weren't the same police officers that went to interview him as the ones that surveyed the scene. So just nobody caught it. Nobody caught it. Wow. It just, they let it they let it go by the wayside so that's crazy because you would think since that was the car they were looking for and there was one surveyed on the scene they would pay special attention attention. to whose car that was yeah and it was seen i i I have no idea how that happened although you have to keep in mind they were going through ten thousand car owners right that's true so i guess i get it (laughs) but it's infuriating nonetheless you know yeah so, um, unfortunately, the case just kind of dwindles. It became sort of light, low priority about a year later. They just, like, weren't coming up with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, about 1974, it was archived, okay. considered a cold case. Yeah. Okay, so, fast forward to 1998. <laughs> wow. So, we were just in the 60s? Uh, ni- we were in basically 1960, oh, sorry, 74. 1974, and now we're at 1998. So we're 24 years later-ish. Yeah. Yeah. It's always later. Yeah. So, police decide to reopen this case among a bunch of other cases, um, because there's new technology on the horizon, which is, da 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 DNA testing. Yay. We all know and love. So, um, they were able to, uh, like, isolate the killer's DNA on the clothing of Geraldine and Pauline, the girls who were found together. Mm-hmm. They didn't have in their system any exact matches, but the system did return 35,000 people of interest, so, like, partial matches. Right. Um, and so, at that point, a psychological profiler was brought in to narrow down the list to 500 people. Joseph Kappen made that list. Good. However, <laughs> of course, <laughs> police uh, visited his home only to find out that he died in 1990 of lung cancer. <laughs> so there went that. 
Hmm. His wife, however, was still alive. This is Christine. Mm-hmm. Somehow they stayed married. Yikes. Well, I she bet she was probably she was... too scared to leave. And probably really happy when he Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> anyway. All right. So they obviously they move on. They move down their list to 500. They keep going. They come up with nothing. A few months later, though, um, investigators uh, did DNA testing on the case of Sandra Newton that was also um, still open. And they found that she was killed by the same person as Geraldine and Pauline. And that's how they finally linked those murders together, even though they were the same exact M.O. It's fine. <laughs> um, so they knew at this point that this killer had three murders mm-hmm. on their hands now. At least. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, so they decided, since they weren't coming up with anything, <clears throat> it had been so long since the murders took place that investigators thought they could find the killer by making a partial match between the killer's DNA and that of any children that they had. Okay. So they went into their system and, like, tested and and just, like, matched, tried to find partial matches and cross-referenced that with their list of 500 they already had from the first test. Mm -hmm. Sorry. It's a little complicated. They came... Um, it came out with a list of 100 local individuals that matched part of the killer's profile. And one of them was Paul Cappen. Oh, you remember that. baby Paul? Mm-hmm. Yep. He was in the system for car theft. Good job, Paul. Oh, my God. Taken after his father. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this led police back to Joseph Cappen because obviously Paul, at the time of the first murder, I think he was only seven years old. Right, so he didn't do so it. So they were like, obviously it wasn't Paul, but his dad has sort of been in and out of this case since the beginning. So here we are back at fucking Joseph. And in and out of jail. <clears throat> yeah. So he was like prime suspect at that point. So they got permission from the court um, after a law of back and forth, I guess, to exhume his body from mm. the grave <laughs> for testing. And it was a perfect match. Case was closed, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the family, though, they still deny everything. Even Christine, his wife. She wow. still, at that point, was like, no, my husband would have never done that. <laughs> okay. I know. Um, after all this happened, police had suspicion that Kappen was responsible for many other assaults and murders, of course, that mm-hmm. were unsolved. Specifically one in 1976 that fit his M.O. almost perfectly. It was, a, it was another girl named Maureen who has a very Welsh last name, I'm not going to try to say. Um, But she was out clubbing, went missing, was found a few days later, raped and strangled and in the forest. Mm. The only thing that really didn't quite match was she was 23. So older than the others. Yes. Yeah. So much older than the others, but otherwise a pretty good fit. Mm -hmm. They just couldn't find any DNA evidence that, you know, sealed the deal. So... That one, unfortunately, is still a cold case. But, of course, knowing this man's history, I am 100% certain that there are so many more murders he's actually responsible for Mm -hmm. that are just, at this point, unlinked to him. So, um, the reason I wanted to cover this guy is because he is actually the first documented serial killer in Welsh history. Oh. So, that's kind of cool, I guess. 
Mm. I know what you mean. Not cool, obviously, to be a serial killer. It's historical. But it is a significant historical point, yes. The other thing to note is that this is the first case in the world to use familial DNA tracing to identify a killer after their death and solve a crime. Oh. So it's the first time that was ever done. And it's weird because, like, we hear about it all the time nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a common-ish, common-ish thing that happens yeah. now to cross-reference DNA. So, but it, they were the very first ones to do it, and it was the first one to lead to a crime being solved. There you go. So. That is cool. So that is actually cool. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, technology. Right. Ah, so that is the story of Joseph Kappen, who was a sick, sick murderer and took the lives of three 16-year-olds, Sandra Newton, Geraldine Hughes, and Pauline Floyd. My sources were wikipedia.org. <laughs> the end. Okay. Give them money. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so Taylor, who are you talking about today? I am talking about Dr. Harold Shipman. Uh Uh-huh. Doctor? (laughs) Ew. Yeah. I'm scared. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll just do my sources at the top because they're at the top of my page. You're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had Wikipedia, um, a podcast called Cautionary Tales, and Mm. the episode was called Catching a Killer Doctor, Uh, thedecisionlab.com, manchestereveningnews.co.uk and mirror.co.uk. Okay, so we are actually going to start kind of at the end of his story. Okay. So June 24th, 1998. Our serial killers are a very similar time frame. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, A local attorney in Hyde, which is a town in England, receives a new will from Kathleen Grundy, who is the former mayor of Hyde. Uh, this strikes the attorney as odd since they've never worked with Grundy before, but they don't think too much of it until a few days later when they receive a letter from someone named Smith informing them that Grundy had passed away. Okay. At this point, the attorney reaches out to Grundy's daughter, Angela Woodruff, who's also like a local attorney and has a lot of experience in executing will, executing, <laughs> in working on wills. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So Woodruff was shocked to read her mother's new will, which stated that she and her children would receive nothing from Grundy, even though there'd been no falling out with the family. She also found it strange that her mother sent this new will to an unknown attorney. Um, (laughs) There were several typos, even though Grundy was a trained typist, and it didn't include the second house and holiday cottage that her mother also owned. And the signatures kind of looked weird, Mm. so it was just sort of suspicious. (laughs) So, the weirdest part was that this new will from Grundy stated that she wanted to leave her house and 386,000 pounds to her doctor, Dr. Harold Shipman. Shit. So, uh, after looking over all of that and everything, Woodruff reached out to the police. And it didn't take the police long to put the pieces together. Um, Grundy had died on June 24th at the age of 81, which was the day the new will was sent to the attorney's office. Like, it's the day they received it. Wasted no time. Yeah. Um, So they exhumed her body and found traces of dimorphine. Um, When the police questioned Shipman, he said that Grundy had been an addict and provided proof through notes he had taken in his medical journal that she was addicted. Oh. 
Um, (laughs) But they discovered that Grundy's medical records had been altered after her death. So. Wow. Shocker. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, this new will they figured out was typed on a brother typewriter, which Shipman happened to own a brother typewriter. Okay. This man is a horrible criminal already. (laughs) I just. Wow. Well, now remember, that was that was the end. That was how he got caught. You're right. Okay. So we're going to go back <laughs> to talk about Cheryl Frederick Shipman and his life. Did I say Harold Frederick Shipman? I think you said Cheryl That's Frederick. what I feel like I said. Yeah. That was, like, interesting. Harold Frederick Shipman <laughs> was born on January 14th, 1946 in Nottingham. He was the second of three children to Harold Frederick Shipman and Vera Britton. While in school, he was one of the best distance runners and was the vice captain of the athletics team during his final year at school. Um, At age 17, Shipman's mother passed away from lung cancer. He was very close to her, so it can kind of just be assumed that he was upset by her passing. Oh, sure. Um, But throughout her illness, he saw her pain relieved through morphine given at home by her doctor. Okay. (laughs) Um, On November 5th, 1966, he married Primrose May Oxtoby, and they had four children throughout their marriage. And in 1970, he graduated from Leeds School of Medicine at the University of Leeds. So, quick overview of his career. Um, He took his first position as a general practitioner in 1974 at the Abraham Amirad Medical Center in Todd Morden, West Yorkshire. Oh, good God. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. In 1975, Shipman was fined 600 pounds after he was caught forging prescriptions for his own use of pethidine, which is a synthetic opioid pain medication. Okay. This guy was already probably an addict then. Right. Okay. He also briefly attended a drug rehabilitation clinic. And he was a student, right? In New York. At this point, he was a general practitioner. Oh, he graduated. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Yep. Um, He then worked as a general practitioner in Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Greater Manchester in 1977. And then he opened his own practice in 1993. Moving on two victims um i didn't find anywhere specifically that this was his first attempt at murdering someone but i kind of feel like it might have been but that i guess that also might not be true but anyway okay august 24th no august 21st 1974 so 1974 he's currently at the abraham Mm. ormirad medical center Mm -hmm. in west yorkshire Thank you. (laughs) Elaine Oswald, who is 25, she goes to see a local doctor in Todd Morden, West Yorkshire, to check about a pain she's having in her side. She'd never met this doctor before, but he seemed to only be a few years older than her. He seemed really friendly. Um, So she went in. She was hoping to be able to go into work later that day, but after meeting with a doctor who, I mean, like I said, Seemed really nice. Yes. In the podcast I was listening to. Yeah, they always do. (laughs) The host was saying, you know, like he was sitting next to her instead of like across a desk from her and just 
seem very personable, all that good kind of stuff. Bedside manner, then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he thought she might have kidney stones. He prescribed her strong painkillers and recommended she go home to rest. He suggested, this is going to sound weird, but just let me get through this part. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he suggested she leave her door unlocked so he could stop by after his morning clinic to do a blood test on her. And I guess since it's in the 70s, that seemed normal. I will, like... And it's, I, like, a small English town. Yeah. You know? I feel like when, like, my grandma worked for a, the small town doctor for a while, and it, that was just one of those things, like, he made house calls because he mm-hmm. knew everyone personally, and it wasn't right. weird to have the doctor come over to your house. Yeah. It's just the way it was. Right. It feels weird to us now. Yes, it sure does. House calls are rare yes. <laughs> anymore. Unless you have money. <laughs> exactly. So later in the day, he stopped by. Um, he told her that his wife and child were in the car and that this would just be a really quick visit. Um, he just needed to get some blood and then he'd be on his way. So the needle went in and the next thing Elaine remembers is waking up on the floor with the doctor and a couple paramedics trying to wake her up. Um, she was rushed to the hospital, but wasn't treated very well by the staff there because they assumed she had overdosed on the painkillers oh. prescribed to her earlier that day. Shit. The young doctor she'd met with that morning was much nicer to her. Um, he assumed she'd had an allergic reaction to the medication and told her how lucky she was that he'd been there to administer the kiss of life for her. Oh, no. After she was released from the hospital, the young doctor invited her and her husband for dinner, where he provided her a medical alert bracelet, so no other clinics would accidentally prescribe her the same medications she'd had an allergic reaction to. She went on to have two children, naturally, uh-huh. no pain meds, uh-huh. because she thought she was allergic to them. Ah, ew, awful. Yeah. No, thank you. Elaine eventually moved to the United States and became an English professor and lived for the next 25 years with the idea that that young doctor had saved her life. Obviously, we already know that that young doctor was Shipman and that her ideas about him and his kindness couldn't be further from the truth. That's crazy how he was able to twist it all to make himself look so good. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure he was like a big power trip. Mm-hmm. He was like, haha, I am God. Right. That's what it seems like. Yeah. So, throughout his murder career, I don't know, Shipman killed over 200 people. What the fuck? Oh, I did not see that coming at all. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, One source said as many as 250 people. It's really hard to know because of how yeah. he did it. So. Oh my god. His signature move was to act like he was going to check on elderly patients who lived a home alone typically um he would give them a lethal a lethal amount of morphine Uh just like he tried to do with elaine um and then when they died he would sign the death certificate saying they died of old age so he would kill healthy people and was known to say that they were drug addicts and would change their medical records after their death um causing the families to be left totally confused by what had happened (laughs) He also apparently killed multiple multiple people in his clinic and then claimed they died of heart failure. Yeah. Oh, God. So, the next victim, I guess the, we've talked about three, 
one of them was a survivor and mm-hmm. this this next one is a survivor as well but oh, yeah. um jim king was uh he was misdiagnosed with cancer by a hospital i don't know how they messed that up but <laughs> once the hospital realized their mistake they sent a letter to king but somehow shipman intervened the letter with the news that king was cancer free and he told King that he was terminally ill with only 18 months to live. So King spent a year thinking he had bladder and prostate tumors. Um, Shipman provided King with morphine, of course. which he became addicted to, and it caused King to lose his job and many of his possessions. Uh, six months into believing he had cancer, Shipman tried to give King, quote, a big injection of morphine, end quote at home but king's wife deborah interjected and talked shipman into giving king antibiotics so this intervention from his wife most likely saved king's life wow and then one day king went to see a urologist about a different medical issue and that's when he learned that he didn't have cancer that's insane yeah he spent a year Uh thinking that he was terminally ill okay Uh uh-huh that's fucked up yeah So, King's father and two aunts were actually three of Shipman's victims. So, he used morphine, like he did with many of his patients, and killed them. Oh, my God. Yeah. This poor family. (laughs) I guess the person above us is deciding to play music now. I guess they are. I hope you enjoy the background music. (laughs) All right. Sarah Mosselin is who we're going to talk about next. Um, August 7th, 1978, she died in her home in Hyde. Um, Shipman, of course, was her doctor. Mm-hmm. There's no way to know for sure if she was one of his victims, since no one suspected that there was a crime until nearly two decades after her sure. murder when he got caught. But it seems like she probably was. Um, she didn't have any health issues, and he showed up unannounced and without being called. But while he was there, she died. I feel like after going back, like once he was caught and they went back and like re-examined all his patient files, you could argue all of them were probably a victim in some way of this mm-hmm. man. Yes. So it was pretty normal for Shipman to visit patients for no reason. And many <laughs> of his clients liked that he did that. Mm-hmm. It made them feel like he had time to check in on them made him seem like a really hardworking doctor and i mean it just gave him a really good excuse so no one was alarmed by the oddity of uh Mosslin's doctor just happening to be there when she mm-hmm. died after all she was in her 80s and her doctor said she died of coronary thrombosis which really? is a blood clot that forms mm. in the blood vessels or arteries of the heart Thank you. I looked things up. Because <laughs> you were like, Tess is going to ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so the last victim we're going to talk about, which is obviously not his last victim, but... <laughs> you don't, you're not going to talk about all 200? I'm not going to talk about all 200. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I did find a website that listed all of his victims, though. It's just like a list of wow. them. Wow, Right. So, Alice Kitchen, she died suddenly at the age of 70 in 1997. Mm -hmm. Um, She had just seen her son a few hours before and seemed completely fine. 
Shipman told the family that he'd stopped by to see her that afternoon and she'd had a stroke, but refused to go to the hospital like he suggested. The family was obviously upset, but they didn't think Shipman had killed Kitchen. They only thought he was guilty of negligence, Mm -hmm. but they didn't make a formal complaint. Sure. It's kind of a hard one to argue or win. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on to the trial and verdict. Okay. So Shipman was arrested September 7th, 1998, which just as a quick, quick reminder, I wish I'd put this down on my notes, but uh, Kathleen Grundy died June 24th, 1998. So. Uh Uh-huh. Three, three months. And his first, like possible victim that you talked about i was in like 73 or 74 um 1974 okay cool so just casually 20 years of crime exactly going undetected sweet the 70s were a time man they were (laughs) (laughs) true crime aficionados all agree the Mm -hmm. 70s were a time oh yeah so yeah, arrested September 7th, 1998. His trial didn't begin until October 5th, 1999. Oh my god. So over a year later. Okay. Um, he was charged with the murders of 15 women by lethal injections of dimorphine between 1995 and 1998. Wow. As we already know, it seems he started earlier than 1995 since Eileen, like we just talked about, was in 1974. But uh-huh. these 15 women were the ones that they had proof of basically because after they caught him they had to like exhume bodies after looking at his medical records oh yeah okay so the 15 women he was on trial for murdering were marie west irene turner lizzie adams jean lily ivy lomas muriel grimshaw marie quinn kathleen wagstaff bianca pomfret nora nuttall pamela hillier Maureen Ward, Winifred Miller, Joan Malia, and Kathleen Grundy. I just feel like it's important to name the victims. I do too. And I apologize if I got anyone's name, <laughs> if I pronounced it incorrectly. Um, so Shipman's legal team tried to have the Grundy case, Kathleen Grundy's case, uh, tried separately from the other 14 women since there was a clear motive. <laughs> Oh, sorry. It's fine. <laughs> Since there is a clear motive with her forged will. Sure. But they were unsuccess- unsuccessful in that. So, yes. Trial began October 5th, 1999. January 31st, 2000. Oh, so it was God. a three-month, four-month trial. Yeah. Um, the jury found Shipman guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery after six days of deliberation. How old was he at this time? So, so it was sorry. 2000. No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> he was born in 1946. Oh my god. So he was 64. Mm-hmm. Almost. Because he was born in January. 54. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. 54. Um, so 54. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Shipman was sentenced to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder with a recommendation of a whole life tariff which is now known as a whole life order 
So apparently in England and Wales, life imprisonment is a sentence that lasts until the prisoner dies, but in most cases, the prisoner will be eligible for early release after a minimum term set by the judge. Mm. A whole life tariff or whole life order does not allow for the possibility of parole or Uh early release. Yeah, which we have something like that here too. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also sentenced to four years for forging the will, which he was, you know, told to serve at the same time as his life <laughs> sentence. So. Sure. Yeah. I think he'll get four years in there. Right. So February 11th, 2000, uh, Shipman was removed from the medical register by the General Medical Council. I'll uh, say. Right. <laughs> he never admitted to the murders and disputed the evidence brought against him. Primrose, his wife, also believed his innocence. Mm-hmm. Um... On January 13th, 2004, uh, Shipman hanged himself with his bedsheets <gasps> and the window bars of his cell. Oh, shit. He was pronounced dead at 8.10 a.m. one day before his 58th birthday. So he didn't serve four years. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. He was uh, just slightly <laughs> off. <laughs> the irony. Okay. So there's speculation about why Shipman took his own life, although a true motive was never established. However, he did supposedly tell his probation officer that he was considering suicide to make sure his wife had financial security after he lost his National Health Service pension. Ooh. Um, Primrose did receive a full NHS pension, which she would not have been entitled to if Shipman had lived to 60 years old. Oh, interesting. Yeah. What a strange, like, oddly like odd it's like oddly an act of like kindness Kindness. yeah i know from this really awful man like right that he was thinking about it's like he loved his family what the fuck like what is wrong with these people i don't know okay so there was also suspicion that primrose four years after her husband had been found guilty started to suspect shipman wasn't as innocent as she had initially believed mm-hmm. um he refused to partake in courses that would have implied acknowledgement of his crimes which led to a temporary ban on privileges while he was in prison like being able to call his wife from prison oh yeah so during this time where he couldn't call her shipman's cellmate said that shipman received a letter from his wife stating quote tell me everything no matter what end quote but obviously he didn't he yeah i bet he did not want to (laughs) right that's kind of that is that is his story yeah um but i have more (laughs) so this podcast I listened to didn't really talk about his crimes so much. What they talked about was, could he have been stopped earlier? Like, oh. Could this have been figured out? Yeah. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Good questions. And I will try and go through it quickly, but also there's kind of a lot of technical jargon, so we'll see how it goes. All right. So the Greater Manchester Police were the ones who initially dealt with this case. The problem was that they didn't even realize there was a serial killer in their area for far too long. Since Shipman targeted the elderly, it seemed to provide an ideal cover story. Sure, the patients would all seem healthy and active in the morning, going to the store or visiting family and neighbors, but when Dr. Shipman would stop by in the afternoon for his regular visits, he would find them dead. Mm -hmm. 
quote, dead of old age, end quote, is what he would write on the death certificate, even though doctors were normally more specific than that. Um, Family and friends would be surprised by this, but not suspicious enough to inform the police. Going back to Sarah Mawson's story, it seems so odd that your doctor would just happen to be making an unannounced house call when you die. One doctor said that it would basically be a once in a lifetime occurrence in the career of oh. a family doctor. Yeah. And yet it happened over and over yeah. and over again right. for Shipman, like it's every few weeks. Suspicious. Yes. So <clears throat> we're gonna talk about <laughs> we're gonna talk about the represent oh, hold on. I can do this. So we're gonna talk about the representativeness heuristic. God, that's so hard for me. What the fuckity fuck is that? It's okay, I've got it. <laughs> Great. So this was created by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. <laughs> cool. Two influential people in behavioral economics who determined that the main reason we make assumptions about the world is because we have limited cognitive resources. We make thousands and thousands of decisions a day, most of the time without realizing it, because our brains are wired to do so while conserving as much energy as possible. In order to conserve that energy, we rely on shortcuts to make quick assumptions or judgments about the world. But there is another big reason the representativeness heuristic happens. (laughs) Uh, this is a quote from the decisionlab.com. It is rooted in the fundamental way that we perceive and understand people and objects. So I'm going to give you some examples to make it make more sense. Okay. And both of these are from the decision lab site. All right. So let's say you're going to a concert with your friend, Sarah. Sarah has also invited two of her friends whom you've never met before. You know that one of them is a mathematician while the other one is a musician. When you finally meet Sarah's friends, John and Adam, you see that John wears glasses and is a bit shy, while Adam is more outgoing and dressed in a t-shirt and jeans. Without asking what they do for a living, you assume that John must be the mathematician and Adam must be the musician. You later find out that you are mistaken. Adam does math and John plays music. Just like a doctor being a killer! (laughs) I'm guessing. The classic example used to illustrate Mm. this bias asks the reader to consider Steve, Mm -hmm. whom an acquaintance has described as very shy and withdrawn, invariably helpful, but with little interest in people or in the world of reality. A meek and tidy soul, he has a need for order and structure and a passion for detail. So after hearing that description of Steve, Mm -hmm. do you think it's more likely that Steve is a librarian or a farmer? Give me that description again. (laughs) Very shy and withdrawn, invariably helpful, but with little interest in people or in the world of reality. A meek and tidy soul. Mm -hmm. He has a need for order and structure and a passion for detail. I would... Librarian. Right. But... But you know what it's asking, so yes. (laughs) But I will say, I'm sorry, I come from like a family of farmers. Right. The only thing that doesn't really fit that is like being out of touch with reality. Right. Because, like, all of the other things you actually really need to be a farmer. Oh. Well, most people don't come from families of farmers. I guess so. I'm sorry. Sorry, I've ruined the whole theory decision lab. It's, yeah. I'm here it's to, not my example. I'm here to fuck shit up <laughs> and play devil's advocate. What's up? <laughs> right. So, intuitively, most of us feel like Steve must be a librarian because he's more representative of our mm-hmm. image of a librarian mm-hmm. than he is of our image of a farmer. Mm-hmm. So, um, this is a quote. This is a quick and easy way for our subconscious minds to make decisions. 
We use it all the time without knowing, and it often works, but it can lead us astray. And that's from the Cautionary Tales podcast. So, like it did for the town of Hyde Uh when it came to Shipman. Uh Shipman changed his tactics from what he tried to do to the young Elaine and started focusing on the elderly. Right. Elderly people dying, even if it just so happens to occur when their doctor is stopping by for an unplanned visit, doesn't immediately strike us as odd. The representativeness heuristic tells us nothing strange is happening and to move on from it. You know? Yeah. So, circling back to my first point with the issue (laughs) the Greater Manchester Police were having, (laughs) it wasn't just that people didn't realize Shipman was a killer. They didn't even realize there were murders happening because the representativeness heuristic was telling them nothing out of the ordinary was happening. Don't dwell on it. Move on. Old people die. Period. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Prescription for Murder, which is a book about Shipman's murder by murders by Brian Whittle and Jean Ritchie, um, discusses how the ages of the victims wouldn't make a, st- a statistician suspicious. A what? A, st- a statistician. Statistician. A statistician. What a do they stat- do? A statistician. A stat- t- t- a statistician? <gasps> like they do statistics? Yeah. Oh yeah. I was yeah. like, am I saying it so wrong that she doesn't even know what it is? <laughs> Uh-huh. A status. I guess it's it's not a statistician. It's a it? statistician. Yes, I think it is. It's a status statistician. I think you're right. I was writing this and I was like, I'm not going to be able to say this. <laughs> a it's s- a weird word. Okay, there's too many consonants that are the same. Yes, <laughs> a statistician. Yep, we all know what it is. Person that works with statistics. Yep. However, according to Tim Harford on the Cautionary Tales podcast. He argues that while this makes sense for normal people because of the representativeness heuristic to not have any flags go off with the ages of the victims, mm-hmm. um, a statistician yep. <laughs> doesn't rely on the representative heuristic. They look sure. at the data. So any statistician who looked at the data from... <laughs> From, did I say it wrong that time? No. Okay. <laughs> You're just nervous about it. I'm so nervous. <laughs> Any statistician who looked at the data from Shipman's clinical practice would have noticed an alarming mortality rate. Oh, yeah. No doubt. <sighs> okay. So, David... Sh- Copperfield. No. <laughs> okay. I tried. David Spiegelhalter... One of the the UK's foremost statisticians (laughs) and his team told the Shipman Inquiry, which was a report produced by a British governmental investigation into Shipman, that looking for suspicious patterns in medical records was very similar to looking for suspicious patterns in product manufacturing or dice rolling. Okay, I'm sorry, but you we it's could so we, many words. We could make a tongue twister out of this. <laughs> statistician statisticians, see? <laughs> statisticians suspicious shipmen Spiegelhalter. Spiegel- <laughs> I feel like this could make a really good tongue twister. I'm gonna have to think on this. Okay. Okay. Alright. So Yes. <laughs> looking for suspicious patterns in medical records was very similar to looking for suspicious patterns in product manufacturing or dice rolling. For example, mm-hmm. you're rolling a dice. You get a one, a three, 
a one, a five, a one, a seven, a nine, a one, and so on. This is an episode of Friends. I know. <laughs> I, know. I was actually thinking about that when I was typing it. <laughs> so you can... I almost said David Schwimmer. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> you can continue rolling the die, but at one point, do you say, wait a minute, there might be something wrong with this die. I'm rolling too many ones. Like, it seems weird yeah. that I'm rolling this many ones. Um, another example uh, would be products on a production line. You don't want to stop the processing of products because of one faulty product, but you also don't want to continue the process if multiple products will be faulty. So any product will have a failure rate, but at what point do you say, wait, something's wrong here? It's kind of how Spiegelhalter is saying a statistician would look at patterns mm-hmm. in a medical record, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, this happens, but right. also... Why is it happening so much? When does like when does the red flag go up? Right. Yeah. So you might have different cases depending on where the doctor works. You obviously wouldn't want to compare a doctor working in a retirement community to yeah. one working at like a family doctor's office because they see very different people. Um, so you can't compare their mortality rates. Yeah. But if you track multiple doctors in a retirement community and their death rates, an unusual pattern would definitely stick out like shipments. Yep. So if someone had used this method to track shipments death rates, there's a chance they could have stopped him 14 years before his arrest and saved around 100 people. <gasps> and this is just one method. Huh. You could also look at the fact that shipments victims stopped for a few years after he left a clinic, maybe because he was worried other doctors were starting to notice. Mm-hmm. Um, but once he set up his own clinic, his murder started again. Also, a lot of his patients died in the early afternoon when he would normally go around on his home visits. Yep. Mm -hmm. So these patterns, according to Spiegelhalter, require no statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. Draw a graph of the data and it becomes apparent that this should be investigated. So if alarms had been raised about Shipman, a forensic analysis of his medical records would have revealed that he was backdating his entries or an autopsy Mm -hmm. of one of his victims would have shown the lethal amounts of morphines. Mm Mm-hmm. But could there have been, like, local preventions? Like, not this big, wide data thing, but locally, could someone have prevented this? John Shaw, who was a local taxi driver, after Shipman's trial, felt like he could have done more to prevent some of the murders. He drove many of the victims around the town and knew them well enough to attend their funerals. Mm -hmm. Um, He had made the connection that they all went to Shipman. Okay. By the time he went to the police, he discovered they were already looking into Kathleen Grundy's death. Even if he had decided to go to the police sooner, the police admit that his concerns very well could have been ignored by them. Yeah. Taxi driver versus a well-known local doctor, you know. Unfortunately, yes. Yes. But then there was also Debbie Massey, a funeral director who buried and cremated many of Shipman's victims, and Linda Ooh. Linda Reynolds, another local doctor, who, went, who did go to the police in March 1998 about Shipman, but obviously since Grundy was killed in June of that year, they didn't listen to them. Mm-hmm. So while these people could have potentially made a difference if they'd spoken up earlier, we're really only talking about like maybe a couple weeks to a month sooner. Um, versus 14 years. Versus 14 years. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like it's their fault that he wasn't oh, caught, you know, it's not. just, it's just interesting to look at those types of things. Yeah. And of course, again, with like him 
I mean, it's just like the first thing you were talking about, the representative heuristic. Representativeness or heuristic. I was close enough. You were very close. But like, yeah, why would those people like, they would be like, eh, no, the easiest explanation is probably the truest one. Right. Like they're old. They're old. Yeah. Like they're not really looking for a pattern. Yeah. So. So just to end this all out. I liked this quote from Tim Harford's Cautionary Tales podcast. It was actually really good. If you're interested, it's called Catching a Killer Doctor. I'm about to look it up. (laughs) So his quote was, if instead we had collected the simplest of data sets, if we had run the most basic analysis of that data, we would never have needed to depend on people risking the scorn of the police (laughs) and the enmity of Harold Shipman to stop him. End quote. Okay. So that's Harold Shipman and a lot about... Stats. Statistics. <laughs> Thanks for triggering me back to AP stats in high school, which was the fucking worst class I ever took. It definitely wasn't in my plans when I started this, but then I found that podcast yeah. and I was listening to it and I was like, well, this is really interesting. I mean, it is worth, like... Probably the same thing with my killer too. It's like if you think about if it, it hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Mm-hmm. But like if you look at it and you connect the dots, you're like, how did no one see this earlier? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know exactly. It just is the way it is, unfortunately. Yep. All right. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I feel like I just said a lot. Downer. Yeah. All right. Well. Um, Happy Sunday, everyone. <laughs> Let's talk about something somewhat happy. Tea. I like tea. I like tea. Good. And I liked this tea. You did. I had the Bigelow's French vanilla tea. It was the decaf version. And I will tell you, I didn't notice any difference between the regular and the decaf. It was just as good. So props to Bigelow's for, it's just, this is a solid tea anyway. It's one of my go-tos, but at least I know now I can do the decaf and not get shaky. Yay. Yay. Um, nine out of ten. Good wow. ass tea. There you go. There you go. Okay. What'd you have again? I had the Brits peach. <laughs> My mouth is done. <laughs> no more articulating for Taylor. No. And I even struggled in that last part. I had the Brits peach ruibos. Uh-huh. Ugh. It was good. It had a lot of tea leaves in it. <laughs> yeah, and that probably tainted it a little. A little bit. Uh-huh. Um, I feel like I'd like to try it with a strainer that's smaller, so it doesn't have as yeah. many tea leaves. Um, but from what I had of it, I liked it, and I would give it like a seven. Cool. And you gave it, when you had it, oh. back in 2001. What? Did you say 2001? I did. 2021. I think we might need to go to bed after this. My brain is so done. Um, <laughs> you gave it a 7.5. Okay. Okay. Wowie. Zowie. Can you do cow. the outro? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Not News Podcast. And we post every other Wednesday and Sunday to remind you when an episode's going up and the day that an episode goes up. You can also email us at notamusepodcast at gmail.com with any comments or topic ideas, things you want to hear us cover. Um, We will be
be back in two weeks with our next episode mm-hmm. about I don't even know what at this point. It's planned, <laughs> but I have to open a document and I'm not going to do I that. I think it's my fair lady. Okay. Cool. <laughs> totally different vibes. Yes. We're going to we're gonna go back to happiness eventually, okay? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> if you managed to make it through all that. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Bye. Bye.